Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. They were a motley Dixie combo in a rusty bar and grill on a dusty road. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. This is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information on this podcast, please visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 28 is Jill Freeman. You are listening right now to some of Harry's song, straight from the cassette from 1989. The album was called Feel Like Making Art from the Life is Grand Band. Since that project split up, she has released two very thoughtful, well-produced albums. We're going to be focusing on A Handmade Life from 2015, discussing the songs Murder Town and Eyes of Fire. And at the end, we'll listen to Walking on Glass and a little tiny bit of The Nightingale, also from that album. As our third discussion song, we're going to go to her previous album, Everything Makes Me Cry, 1995. The album is called Songs About Sex and Depression. We'll talk about the progression between her different projects and about the theme of this newest album, which is retellings of fairy tales to dig at one's deep, dark psychology and the interesting flavors of music that that idea engendered. To learn more about Jill, go to jillfreeman.com. Hi. Hi, Jill. We can emphasize... Whatever points you want. If you want to just talk about the Jungian archetypes underlying the songs and not even talk about the music at all, that's fine. I will have played Harry's song, just a little bit of it, just to get a taste of that first album by the Life is Grand Band or demo. I guess it's an EP something. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) I was a little surprised how much more jazz... I guess because it's a vocal trio and it brings to mind Andrew Sisters or Manhattan Transfer. I'm so ignorant in that general area of music that where were you pulling? I saw that that was a co-written. Laura Zambo wrote the music to that and you wrote the lyrics, but there's still, there's enough of that jazz, those chords and things that make their way into your modern stuff. What were you actually listening to? Was it Joni Mitchell and how she gets into jazz or was it actual jazz or what? (laughs) I think Laura was hearkening back to a time when this story could have had occurred maybe in the 50s, like a Dixie combo. She was trying to get a little jazzy Dixie combo thing going. She's quite talented and quite experienced musician, composer. If you hear the other songs, they're not necessarily jazzy. There's songs that have jazz elements. I think we just depends on who was playing, who was writing. They used to compare us to Dan Hicks and his hot lick. Well, let's cut to the current album. I guess let's do a, a quick introduction. This is from A Handmade Life, 2015. This is the album you're currently pushing. And tell us a little about the sort of conceit behind the album in terms of the fairy tale basis and the psychoanalytic exploration of the fairy tales and how this particular song, Murder Town, the second song, sort of the first full song, since the first one is just a prelude on the disc, where this fits in. I'd been interested for a long time in Jungian psychology because I had a Jungian therapist at one point, she turned me on to all these books and I just really got into it. And then when I started to think about what I wanted to write about, as opposed to what I should write about, my passion was behind this. And I found, I just went, I think I was reading a book by Clarissa Pinkola Estes and it was all about fairy tales. And I just got really inspired by that book. Not that I hadn't read other ones. I was just, that was the one that set me off. And I just thought, well, that's an idea. And I just got lit up by that idea of, of bringing the human story or my human story to fairy tales, to use them as an allegory for the human experience of my human experience of being alive. Because I think that human beings need stories. I think that's a fundamental kind of thing. We need those stories that these things keep existing. And I think that I just had a lot of passion for it. And so I started doing it. And Letters from Murder Town, the funny thing about Letters from Murder Town is that I had the idea for that song in my early 20s, way, way, way before I got the idea for this record, and I couldn't write it. And then I revisited it, I don't know, 10 years ago, and this song came out. I really didn't know what that was about. I think I wrote it at the same time I was doing the fairy tale project, but I didn't realize that, you know, the mind works in amazing ways, that it's actually working 
even when I consciously don't know it, the mind is churning up stuff, especially in the creative way that I can use. And it wasn't until later I realized, no, this is what this whole album's about, is my unconscious landscape. That's what that is. It's like a, a little photograph of my internal landscape. It's like a love letter to all the aspects of myself. We spend a lot of time shutting down on those things, you know, that we're not supposed to have in our personalities. I think it works as a good way to start, a good door into a journey. Letters from Murder Town. 
where do you want to start on this? More about the particulars of the songwriting or the arrangements on this album are just so rich. I know that you worked with your husband, Joel Wachbrit. Yes. Who does the electric guitars. Although I saw that in our second song where you did a lot of the percussion, it seems like you're into the soundscape part as well, that you're noodling around in there. The record, I started putting arrangements together before he even got involved because I had my own little studio uh-huh. and I started doing natural sounds and making up arrangements for several of the songs before we got into the recording studio. So we had a sort of blueprint. Okay. And then the two of us came up with stuff together. We went further with it. We took the vision further. And it was a lot of fun playing creators and hitting pipes with shovels. And it was really fun. <laughs> well, what I especially like about this is that in particular on the second and third song we're going to listen to, but you hear it here as well, is that there's some good chordal vocabulary underlying the thing. That it's not just in this one, it's hard to see because it's this sort of simple circus effect. <laughs> It seems that either you're doing, as with the third song, Everything Makes Me Cry. This is why I brought up the jazz thing. Often with these interviews, I try to sit down and figure out the chord progressions. I didn't even try with that one because it's just so thick throughout. Like, okay, I could see that there's an augmented there that's wrapping up something. And I could see then how that vocabulary, you know, when we get to Eyes of Fire, well, that's in there. The chords are also hard to figure out. However, the arrangement for that song and really most of the stuff on this album sort of overwhelms that aspect. So it's not like we're just playing a thick, juicy chord and letting it ring and then kind of feeling the zen of that. Like that's a certain kind of jazz ballad. Right. I'm just using jazz for lack of a better term. Anything musically complex almost <laughs> gets called. Right, right, right. You know, I got to tell you something about that. Everything makes me cry is from the first record. Yeah. And I started playing jazz chords. I thought they were more interesting. And also, they got me out of playing bar chords, which I didn't have very strong hands. So it was much better for me. <laughs> I was much more interested in them. They had more complex sounds. So everything makes me cry is a very traditional sort of jazz ballad kind of sound to it. When I kept going further with my guitar playing, I started making up chords. Because I found that if I followed my ears more than my sentiment about like one, four, five, or, you know, as far as progressions and stuff, that I came up with more interesting things, that my ears knew more than my intellect about music. The height of that on this album seems to be The Nightingale, which is a poem that then you played some kind of piano stuff underlying, which I was a little unclear whether it was more random experimentation or whether there was a music theory method under there. The nightingale skims the ever-changing play of clouds, cool, then warm, wet with rain, light, then dark again. What happened was I was playing the piano and just sort of goofing around, and I thought I was doing that sort of every day for a while, and I decided I was going to record that, and that piece came out of that, and I had written the poem, and I just thought, Let's see if I can put this together. And they actually fold it together quite well. Does that vocabulary come out of the same place of experimentation as we were talking about in terms of the guitar? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's always the most interesting, sort of one of the nice things about guitar. I don't know. Do you use alternate tunings ever to even make that more elaborate? Yeah. yeah. Letters from Murder Town is in C. Ah, well, now we're talking relevantly about the song again. Okay. (laughs) Is that okay? (laughs) Yes, yes. So tell me a little more about how this main sort of circus riff, where this is coming from, this Kurt Vile, Tom Waits, the circus oh, thing, and, and its connection to yeah, fairy tales. That's sort of an unclear, yeah, they're both have a sort of Eastern European historical right. flavor to them, but. That's another aspect of what I was interested in at the time. I just was really a fan of Kurt Vile and Bertolt Brecht's music, and I'd been a fan of Tom Waits for a really long time. I was just sort of fascinated by that sound. And what is that sound? You know, where does that come from? And then, you know, I found out about this thing called Grand Guignol, which was a, I guess, a French theater thing that happened back, I don't know, in the early 20th century. I'm not sure. And just this whole dark kind of fun thing. I just got really fascinated by that. And there's a musical called Shockheaded Peter that I thought was just the bee's knees. And I just really wanted to experiment with those sounds. It just seemed to work to bring that element and my fascination with fairy tales together. 
to create a world. It's all about creating an atmosphere and a world, a journey. I wanted to make a long sonic journey for people to go on. Did you have the idea in this that from the start when you're putting this together, once you had the main circus riff that, yeah, this really needs clarinet at the end. This needs some of these other noises that you ended up with here. The clarinet in particular, I think it was my husband's idea and we brought in Bob Shepard and they were telling him different things to do and he was being a little straight and I said, why don't you just play whatever you feel like playing? And he did and that was the best, the keeper. He just went a little crazy and he's a great musician. Actually, I think it's according to your, it's Mike Nelson on this one. Uh, It's Bob Shepard on the other one we're going to (laughs) hear. I'm sorry. Mike Nelson played on Letters from Murder Town. Right? So, so It's a very Eastern European, you know, it's like we've gone into Hava Nagila here. I mean, that's just the sound of the clarinet playing over a minor key. That's that's a little inescapable. Acidic kind of uh, thing. I think we just let him go. I think we let Mike just do his thing, and he did his thing several times. And then we came up with a part from that. He's a great musician. So tell me a little more about the lyrics here. It's just a series of images, tires and rust, drunken clowns, dope fiends, dancing bears, (laughs) babies curled on unwashed floors. (laughs) Is this supposed to be just the sort of unconnected detritus of depressing thoughts? Or where did these come from? What was the idea here? Originally, it just came out. Mm -hmm. And then looking back, you know, it's really hard to pull stuff like that out and say, what is that? But I think it's the representation of the stuff that you don't allow forward in your consciousness because you're raised within a narrow band and you don't really look into the dark of ourselves, the fascinating kind of rich, juicy dark of ourselves very much. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to do anything about that murderer that lives down the street in your consciousness. It's just a way to access all aspects of the being. And I think that I just did that unconsciously. And I was just sort of fascinated with where I was going. There's, If you look at it, there's circus clowns and murderers and it's dancing bears and babies who are, need to be cared for and crooks and hookers and that are going to break your heart. All of that stuff, they're opposite. There's a lot of opposites there. So it's contradictory stuff. And I think that I'm probably talking about the contradictions we hold within ourselves. Sure. And what you said, what do you have to do about that? I mean, there's two sort of statements of that in here, which is the chorus. Well, you're filing letters from murder. So it's not even there are letters that are going out to the world. They're just being filed. They're sort of, (laughs) you're just taking note of, yes, this stuff is going on. I'm taking note, yes. <laughs> and then in dim lamplight, I'll raise my song to feelings deep, to passion strong, that, yes, of course, you can channel this into art. That's the other thing. <laughs> and that's probably how you acknowledge them and file them away, you know, at least if you're lucky enough to have that as an outlet as you do. I think oh, a lot of people feel like this, but as you're growing up, you feel like you don't fit in, kind of like there's a lot of you you're not showing. I think that's for a lot more people than just artists, but I, it definitely was true for me. I felt like I had to shut myself down in order to be acceptable. <laughs> so that's part of it too. It's just like embracing and letting go saying, this is who I am. Yeah. Let's bring our second song. We don't have to stop talking about that song, but let's at least get the second song out there so we can have the greater picture of this album before us. Eyes of fire, a couple songs later on the CD there. Give us an intro. So this is the first one that we're talking about that relates to a specific fairy tale, which is the Baba Yaga story, the Vasalisa, which I did look up today to see. Did you? <laughs> yes. And you had mentioned in a video talking about this, Clarissa Pincola Estes, she's a psychoanalyst, I assume. Yeah, you mean psychologist. Yes. Interprets this story as a tale of female liberation. Yes. All right. So tell more about how this song exemplifies what you're trying to do in this album here. So the whole idea is you decide to take a journey into yourself and become liberated, but then you don't know what you're getting yourself into. So now you're trapped. That's the, basically she got seduced into this. Now she's trapped and she doesn't, she has all these impossible things that she has to do for this witch. Ultimately, she uses the little doll that her mother gave her when she died that talks to her. She has this little doll that talks to her when Baba Yaga's not around. And the doll is her intuition. So she's capable of doing all these tasks with this intuition in herself. And the Baba Yaga, who's really, you know, kind of a embodiment of wisdom, gives her the things she needs. And the things she needs are, you know, she says at one point, I need a fire to guard my back and tell me what it sees. I need these things so I can grow up. 
she wants to be a fully developed, she doesn't know it consciously, but she's, she wants to be able to be independent and fully developed human being. So that's why she's come to Baba Yaga. And Baba Yaga ultimately gives her those things and she's a fully grown, free human being. And then she goes back to the evil stepmother. This is the rest of the story. She goes back to the evil stepmother who wanted to kill her by sending her to Baba Yaga. And the f- eyes of fire that Baba Yaga has given her kill the stepmother. So she's completely liberated from that old negative archetype. Yes, just to get a little more of the literal story out for people that are unfamiliar. So she starts in this sort of typical Cinderella-like stepmother, making her do a lot of chores and sends her out to get some coals for the fire. And she has to, for some reason, go to Baba Yaga in particular. Yeah, the step's hoping that she'll be killed, basically. She's trying to get rid of her, but she doesn't know what she's set in motion. And this is what has happened. All right. And then Baba Yaga similarly makes her do a lot of work, which in the story, as I looked it up, in both cases, actually the doll is not just her conscience, actually just gets up and does a bunch of the work. But you didn't include that part. It seems like that's a little too magical cheating. Uh you know, I wrote like three songs because it was really a long story. So I was like, which way am I going to go with this? Like, I actually wrote a song that's like 12 verses. And it was like, oh, can't do that. Because <laughs> it told all the stuff that happens. This is more about just getting the pith, you know, of the story. All right. That's enough context. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Katie. 
So likewise, awesome big fat arrangement. And I see you're, you're credited with playing cheese grater shovel and samples on here. So that thing instead of a snare drum, is that the shovel? Is that? Yes. Deborah Dobkin is also playing an anvil. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. An actual anvil. Yeah, there's an anvil and a, I'm hitting a pipe with a shovel. So we put those sounds together. I wanted it to sound like she's in some kind of warehouse working her ass off, you know, just like working really hard for Bobby Yaga. Well, even just the maraca that sets up the thing, it just has this slimy feel to it. It's a really great texture to get it going. Anything else about the arrangement? We're throwing in this ethnic potpourri because when you really get going, the banjo comes and takes over and yeah. becomes this, like, why it's devil music, whatever, <laughs> Eastern European, but also Southern banjo devil music. Like, those all fit together. Oh, that's, I didn't ever think of that. See? See, there you go. <laughs> Joel thought of that, and I thought he played that, and it was just a great sound. You know, it was just a wonderful, weird sound on top of all that. So both of these songs, the lyrics are actually, especially Murder Town, it's fairly compact. But then it's done, and there's still half the song left. So that you left a lot of room for the arrangement. In fact, both of these, coincidentally, have the, I guess you could call it a, a fermata chorus, where just everything stops and you kind of say the lines a little slower. And then in the second half, it picks back up. And now we're back in the in the groove. Have a little breakdown there. Yeah, I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then likewise, kind of filling up the end with some kind of the crazy Bob Shefford bass clarinet is in our fourth song, Walking on Glass. This one takes more advantage of, really goes somewhere strange in the bridge where you've got this whole pretty part with the ah vocals and say something about sort of where that came from. I mean, that is really my favorite part of the song. That's a beautiful, I love that bridge. It's funny, you know, Joel wrote that chord progression for the bridge and couldn't take credit for it. I'm just outing him on that one. And then I just sang over it and I was just doing a couple of experimental things and he went, no, let's keep that. So we kept it. It wasn't intellectual at all. There's no intellectual thing. There's just looking back at my murder town notes here. You had the extra singing the baduba, this sort of, it's not quite just the tune that the accordion and guitar were doing together. It's a more aggressive thing that mirrors, this is in Murder Town again, mirrors what you were doing in the verses, but is the no vocal singing. Well, both of these, you've got nonverbal singing, which is, it's not quite scat singing, but I heard even on Harry's song, somebody is doing a trumpet with their mouth. the lyrics for her because she'd had a mouth trumpet thing that she did so well and so I made up a story about Harry she called him Harry and we wrote a song for her so she could have a solo I think you know I'm just vocally oriented I was then that was a that's a vocal trio that I was in we did a lot of vocal arrangements together it really helped me learn a lot about music just doing all of these complicated vocal arrangements we did I'm a vocalist so vocally oriented I think that's where it comes from so that band and these arrangements, have you played a lot live? I have played a lot live. I just, the, the large space, this is sort of the, being the big puzzle for me in looking at your work is you've got this three albums that are very well arranged, like the vocal trio album, the first one sounds extremely rehearsed. You obviously didn't just come in and kind of make these arrangements up for the recording, even though for this album, it sounds a lot more like the studio is where these things came together. And in fact, could you even do this live? Like you can't get a violin player that's that good to come and play two songs on your live show. You'd have to <laughs> kind of compromise. We just did two CD release concerts back to back ah. and, uh, two weeks ago, and we didn't have the violinist come in. We had six people, and we played the whole thing. But we're thinking of doing that, bringing her in for one, like maybe doing it at a place where we can do like a five-camera thing and and have her play those crazy things. But yeah, there's a lot of, what would you say, personnel on this record, so... <laughs> a lot of specialization. Well, and just even for this song, like the banjo is such an important part of it, but if that's Joel playing everything, he's already playing guitar. How does that work 
live. You just don't have banjo. Well, like for one thing, George Landress, who makes the album, when we played live, he played the alternate guitar parts that okay. Joel He's a great guitar player, great musician. And at the end of this song, it goes back to the original progression, has extra percussion and sits on this. It's really mandolin is dominating everything. So you're really bringing out all the little pieces here. This is what we're talking about, Eyes of Fire. This is in Eyes of Fire, the end of that. Yeah, uh, do that? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a couple of places where we did pull out all the stops. You're right. And that's probably one of them. All right. So I won't bug you anymore about the arrangement. I know that was... <laughs> I love that you're <laughs> talking about the arrangements. Are you kidding? Tell me more about the specific way we told the story, but then how you converted that into these particular lyrics. I don't know. You know, it's funny. I just started making up this weird guitar part. And I tend to write and think up words at the same time musically because that seems to work better as far as singing, you know, finding the words that sing. So they just started to come to me. And I found this world being like right in her head at this moment in the story where she's sort of by herself in the dark thinking about how she's going to do all this. It sort of just came out of that. So the emphasis in the chorus here on the witch as not just the wild and terrible, right. but as kind as a crazy wisdom ancestor pit of my desire. Right. Is that in the story explicitly or even implicitly, or is that kind of something that you are imposing on that? I'm kind of imposing that. I'm deciding that she is this sort of like a great protector being that's really scary and wrathful, but also has a lot to give you. If you can go through the test, she can give you a lot. She's a, an internal archetype, you could say. You could say she's the crone as an archetype that is a place of wisdom. But I made her also really scary because she's Baba Yaga. And it's just an interpretation of Baba Yaga from a bigger perspective on Baba Yaga. Well, even just that their eyes, these eyes of fire, yeah, coals that are supposed to just... She gets back to her house and supposedly the house, I guess, has been cursed while she's gone. So nobody can bring fire in at all that they try to light a fire. Nothing works until she brings this in. Is making them eyes? Is that actually from the story again? It's from the story. She throws, Baba Yaga's really mad because she accomplished everything. So she throws this skull that's full of fire at the girl and the girl catches it. And she takes it back home. So she's got this skull on a spike, I think. And this fire is just coming out of its eyes. And when the stepmother opens the door, the fire from the eyes of the skull just burn her up. So it's like a discriminating quality. It's like, I don't need you anymore. You know, part of her has developed enough so she doesn't need this horrible being. If you think of the whole thing as an inner landscape, then she doesn't need this horrible, abusive stepmother anymore so that skull eyes burn her up is this just getting lost in the richness of the Jungian interpretation here or are you actually channeling something personal as well i think i'm always channeling something personal as well i think that's always true channeling something i'm not asking for a self-confession but like something specifically personal or is it just yes i can relate to becoming strengthened through arduous or I, i'm not exactly sure even what touchstones one would did you would mean a story this. from my past yes is, is there something when you were going through and you can take this about this and really about all these that you were trying to find ways in which these stories pull at our nightmares our personal stuff and you know i can see very clearly with murder town which again you said you wrote earlier and was not actually based on a fairy tale itself but it still that sets a template for how you could approach these actual fairy tales I had never thought about that, but I was kind of bullied when I was a kid. And I was also raised by a housekeeper because my mother worked and my father worked and she wasn't very friendly and she raised me for 12 years and she wasn't very nice. That's probably it. That's probably my personal part of it. All right. Yeah. She wasn't very nice to me and kind of a bully. I guess I hadn't really thought about such a common theme to have the whole evil stepmother thing and sort of and why that was such an obsession <laughs> in fairy tales. And of course, those are ones that actually reached us as opposed to the many other much weirder ones in Brothers Grimm and other places that completely surprise us are not been made into 12 different movies. <laughs> yeah. Why is that stepmother just keep <laughs> coming back? There's got to be a reason. I don't know. It's Well, somebody who's in your life that doesn't love you the way your mother would. Mm -hmm. Your mother would, I think. And that's not true of all stepmothers by a long shot. But, but somebody, I think that's the representation. Yeah. Somebody who has not bonded with you. 
Yes, or just a generalized way of thinking about, this is me just BSing yeah. psychoanalytic stuff, but thinking about the influences that are the less than caring, wherever they may have come from, oh. that you get when you're a kid, then that becomes the major thing that you have to work through. Yeah, junior high for one, right? <laughs> well, speaking of junior high, we should throw everything make me cry out uh, there because uh, that would be the time for that. We said a little about this third song, how it's much more of a, I don't want to say traditional, but a straight ahead jazz ballad. It doesn't have the conceit. This whole album doesn't have, well, you can tell me, does it have a, this is songs of sex and depression, songs about sex and depression. So it's got a theme in that there's songs about sex and depression. Although I didn't notice a lot of songs specifically about sex itself, at least. This is good. It's about sex for sure. <laughs> I know there should have been more songs about sex. I should have been <laughs> written more songs about sex. This album is from 95, right? Yeah. Re-released recently with this new push here. Do you want to say something about how that project differed from this one and where you're at with this song in particular? You mean originally or the remastering of it? Either one. But yeah, originally we're talking about basically the writing of the songs here. Uh, songs about sex and depression. It came out of when the Life is Grand Band broke up. I was really heartbroken because I thought we were going to do really well. I was really proud of that band. I really enjoyed being in that band. And I went into a depression, actually. So I started to write from that. And I got a lot of songs that I thought, oh, nobody's ever going to be interested in this. And then I started to play them in clubs and people would come up and go, no, you need to play that. That's important. So I started collecting. They're not all depressing by any means. There's just you know, a couple of them that are very direct. And everything makes me cry is just really honest. <laughs> and it's based on something a guy I liked a lot said once. He invited me over to his parents and he and his brother were teasing his mother because she laughed at commercials. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't tell him I laugh at commercials, too. And later I thought about that and I thought, well, I'm going to just write a song about that because it's true. Everything makes me cry. Well, yeah. And using that as a dismissing a an unwanted lover or a jilted. Probably. Yeah, probably at some level. I'm like, hey, this is me, too. You know, this is. Yeah, it was just like writing about what's true, that I'm a big mush pot, that I just I'm an old sentimental fool. <laughs> It was a very satisfying song to write because it's true. And I think that's, as a songwriter, I think that that's the most important thing for me. The most satisfying thing for me is writing something honest, whatever that means. Commercials will do it. Yeah, they will. I've made people laugh before. The ones at Christmas with families really slay me. Or my dad whispering. Drops my heart to the floor I try to keep my cool But my eyes betray me A silhouette at dusk Birds cutting the sky at dawn A stranger's gentle word When my day's gone wrong See, don't think you're such a special guy Everything makes me cry Everything makes me cry I got room for one more tear or two Don't worry how you'll say goodbye Everything makes me cry Everything makes me cry There's lots more to cry about than you Crosby, Stills, and Nash are great they make me a sobbing wreck The one about the house with the cats just nails me Or running into old playmates Still has that effect And my same attempts to be smooth Forever fail me The ballet on PBS My best friend's baby smile I can think of a million things If I think a little while See, don't think you're so special, guy Everything makes me cry Everything makes me cry I got room for one more tear or two Don't worry how you'll say goodbye Everything makes me cry Everything makes me cry 
there's lots more to cry about than you. Wonder what made you think you were that precious. See me, I'm just the sensitive type. None of these tears hold any water. There's even too few of them to wipe. No, don't think you're so special, guy. Everything makes me cry. Everything makes me cry. I got room for one more tear or two. Don't worry how you say goodbye. Everything makes me cry. Everything makes me cry. There's lots more to cry about than you. There's a whole world out there. Cry about besides you. So it's much more straight ahead, and you've already said where this came from. Is there anything else sort of that you recall about how this one came together in particular? Was it the thick jazz chords on guitar were coming out at the same time as the words, or was this a poem, you know, a set of lyrics first, and then you put something to it? No, I just came up together. I was experimenting with chords and where they would go. And I think I'd learned a couple of new shapes and I was applying that. You know, sometimes I apply it like that instead of like G to, uh, I don't, I know that stuff, that whole fairy thing, but I don't use it because it's like an obstacle. So I just, I go, Oh, look, that shape goes to there. And then this goes to here. And Oh, listen to that. That's interesting. And it just came out. I was already doing that sort of experimentation with sound and words together. So and it came out pretty quickly as I recall. And then the performance here, it's got the dual acoustic thing, which I just was watching videos of you and your husband doing these together. I assume this is the two of you here as well. He, I saw he produced this album too. Yes, he did. Yeah. When we first started dating, we started to play out live and he's just a really accomplished guitar player, but he's also extremely musical. So he came up with these beautiful parts. Yeah. So these weird chords that you were coming up with, it sounds like he just latched right onto him and, you know, could add yes. little flourishes within there. Was it a very, very artistic musical person? It's a real gift to me to be able to play with him. So was it when you're teaching something like this, I've had this, you know, it's very different playing with different players in terms of, okay, I figured out this thing. I'm not sure what it is. Here are the notes I'm playing. In fact, I just wrote out the tab for it. Do something with that. And, you know, teaching that to a keyboardist or something, of course, is difficult. You know, you got to put in the effort. And then if they don't have the music theory to work with that kind of stuff, too, then it's, well, it's just as odd for them as it is for you. You know, that it's just a matter of a fairly slow process of, okay, this chord has sharp fifth and the ninth and there you right. go. Or is Joel so on top of his music theory that he could just look at and then embellish what you were <laughs> coming up with more experimentally? That one. Oh, okay. Well, that's a handy thing to have. I always like working with somebody oh, man. who knows more music theory than I do. Oh, my gosh. Like, I can write charts, but he's like, no, honey, just let me write it. <laughs> because he's had so much experience writing charts, he knows all the little teeny shortcut stuff to write on there. And he's ahead of me in the game. He got his degree in composition, which I did not. So he knows those things. So I let him do it. All right. So tell me a little about then, again, I am returning to this question that you've got these very good sounding albums, but they're very far apart, which seems atypical that if you're yeah. semi-amateur, I know a lot of people who do this, that every once in a while will record something to then put the effort and money and everything to make it, it usually requires a little ramping up to get so that albums of this quality production usually we hear in a little more rapid fire from but how did this work were you playing these songs live then for the next 15 years before you wrote the new album or or is there a whole several other albums worth of stuff that we just haven't heard of compositions no it actually what happened was i stopped for a while and i had started this record this project and i just didn't know if I could do it, I didn't know if I could pull it off. I had a lot of ideas. I had a lot of vision and it seemed so weird that I just thought, Oh, this is too weird. People aren't good. And I actually ran it by a couple of people. This is several years ago. And the first couple of songs I'd written, they were like, uh, I don't know what you're doing, you know? So I was very intimidated and I stopped 
and actually went back to college and started studying art and did that for several years and thought, okay, I'm leaving music. I'm going to become an artist. I'm going to teach art or something. And I found myself with Joel one night sobbing hysterically because we'd just seen this movie once, which is about songwriters. <laughs> <I'm> familiar. <laughs> yeah. And I just realized I'd left my baby out in the street, you know, and I just realized I had to get back into music. And so in 2009, we started to play out again. And I had also left because of stage fright. I have terrible stage fright. And I just didn't know if I could handle it anymore. But I made myself go back because I had to. And we went back and we started to play. And I, I just knew I had to finish the songs. And so eventually I got the songs finished. And then we had this project to do and we did it. Is that, did I answer you? Sure. I've done both sort of the fronting the band thing and, you know, we're just playing my songs and also been one among multiple songwriters in bands. And I'm finding as I've just sort of returned to this fronting the thing for the first time in several years recently, that it seems much worse in terms of as a solo artist, you know, even if I was singing a lot of the songs before that I could kind of stop and still people would keep going. I don't know. (laughs) There's much more vertigo and stage fright. Isn't that true? You feel so responsible for the whole thing. Thank you for saying that because I don't get that much sympathy. (laughs) Why are you so anxious? What? Well, I'm standing center stage, you know, and I'm saying all the words and everything. It's like, yeah, yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that, Mark. It's difficult for me to separate out things because the last thing I was in with multiple songwriters was more of a loud rock thing that I was just playing bass and singing in and we didn't do that many songs. So we only had a couple hours worth of stuff. Whereas when I'm doing solo, like I got so many things to pull from. I could just, we could do a different set every gig, but then I'm going to forget the words to half of them. And it's going to be, it's just, it's much more, uh, (laughs) see the pants and it's more acoustic and exposed. And so Yes, it's a very different experience. In fact, for the CD release concerts we just did, I said to them during rehearsal, I said, why don't you guys just do it? (laughs) (laughs) They were all doing just so great. I thought, I'll just step out. (laughs) So you can relate to that, right? Well, it's nice to at least have your husband who seems that he can hold it down and probably knows the songs as well as you do. Totally. That you're not having to teach everybody. I was lucky because there's a lot of shortcuts because of that. It's probably been too long ago, I guess, and you you said you were making up the music theory as you were going along. Going along. No, I took classes. <laughs> do, you, do you remember any of the stuff for Everything Makes You Cry in terms of where these, what particular techniques you were doing? I know it. There's a lot of 251 progressions in there. I remember going from, a, I think, is it a minor seven to a major six? I just learned this thing. Is that what you mean? Yes. Like the end of the song. What is that? <laughs> There's a whole world out there to cry about besides you. Oh, I don't know. I just oh, made that okay, up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just went, oh, if I put my fingers here. That's a fine and I do answer. This, Oh, there's a little, and then I take it off, and then... It- was there any alternate tuning or strange stuff on this song? No, it's standard tuning. All I right. I can show you the chords if you want to see them later. I can- <laughs> <laughs> I've been torn. I did more of that in interviews early on, but then I got a little feedback. Like, people don't care. <laughs> it's more <laughs> general stuff about the chordal vocabulary rather than this particular thing. The two people who care can figure it out. It's more you're interested because you play guitar. Yes, guitar. yes, and kind of want to master, yes, all these other sides. Although this one was so kind of foreign to me in terms of vocabulary that dealing with thick chords, again, you've got thick chords also in Eyes of Fire, but they're used there and throughout that album, it doesn't scream jazz to me in the same way because you're using it for theatrical effect. If you look at the score for a musical, yeah, crazy chord, but you like, you don't think of that when you're looking at a chorus line or something like that, because it's all sort of subverted into the mood. And so if you have a thick chord, it's because this is something weird that's going on. It's an expression. It's not just a thick tonal mass to be appreciated as a thick tonal mass. I think Um, it became theatrical because we were trying to create an environment. I think that I never thought of it as a theater piece, but I hear that now. I just wanted to create an environment. It seems like ripe for a production of getting some dancers in, stopping and telling the story, getting some puppets, I don't know, something. <laughs> puppets. For your, your. I had no idea about that, but it is coming up. It's become a suggestion a lot. So, you know, I'm open to a lot of stuff. I don't know what will happen. 
Well, I saw on the, on your album notes you dressed everybody up in carnival clothes, so that's uh, yeah. That's a well, we're all from Murder Town. That's do they that's do that in the show? Is that you lay it on that thick? We haven't done it like that yet, but we're thinking about it. Yeah. See how distracting that is to have. It, to yeah, have. because it's fun. It's fun to dress up. I was trying to see who has the most intrusive clothing. It looks like most of them. It could actually play in those things. Yeah. I'm a fan of various flavors of 70s prog where people would put on clown suits. So it's not an unprecedented. I wonder if that's in my brain pan. It might be that whole thing. I. It's funny. I don't know. It's funny what comes to the fore. You just don't know what is influencing you sometimes. But there were a couple of actual clowns in that photograph. Ah. There's like three actual clowns. Go ahead. Tell the clown story. Uh, there's, a guy named Jolly, Jolly, <laughs> there's a guy named Jolly Goodfellow who's an actual clown. And Jennifer Jonasson is an actual clown. And they just came out and were cool. They just came out in full clown outfits. and To set the standard so you don't notice that everybody else is not as freakily dressed. That is just yeah. raises the overall freaky level. Everybody's pretty freaky dressed, I would say. <laughs> so anything else that you want to say about Everything Makes Me Cry or this older period before we introduce the last song, Walking on Glass, also from the new album? No, I can't think of anything. Tell us about this last one about Walking on Glass. I saw this is Cinderella. The audience will actually know that story. We don't have to tell that. And it's a shuffle of some sort. Is there a name for this particular kind of blues-related swing, heavy, upright bass I have no idea. Okay. No, we were in the studio with Dave Beyer and Steve Nelson, and we'd been playing it live like it was a country-western tune, and I really didn't like that. And I said to them, I really want this to have more of a Waitsian kind of odd kind of trashy sound. And Dave went, how about this? And he came up with this part, like right off the bat. And the bass part, the drum, the drums. Okay. And then Steve started playing with him. Steve's an amazing musician. And it just happened like spontaneously. I went in the vocal booth and started doing the rap. It was just Fabulous. I don't know what Dave is playing. Joel probably could tell you what the name is for what he's doing. So is this something that was originally written more as a you playing acoustic kind of thing like the rest of them and you just chucked that out the window when you got to actually recording it? Yeah. I didn't really want it like that anyway. I just I had chord progressions and stuff. It was just too kind of dun da dun da dun you know, kind of country folk kind of thing. And I didn't want that. I wanted it to be more interesting and her vocal to be more interesting. Her, me, my vocal to be more interesting and so that's what happened. It just sort of went, and the song is about how brave is that to put on actual shoes made of glass and go out and change your fortune completely. You know, when you're like a slave to these three women that are keeping you in this corner and go out and change things completely. That's brave. That's really brave. And you might hurt yourself too. The shoes might break on the cobblestones, you know, you don't know. And this is the one with the Bob Shepard bass clarinet solo, which really That's the one. compared to Mike Nelson, that one is subtle by comparison to this one. This one really gets over the top. He did. He played with Johnny Mitchell. I, he's, he's kind of a special, he's a very famous guy. Um, but anyway, he lives around here and he came in and we were doing some traditional stuff and I asked him to do some non-traditional stuff, just do whatever he felt like doing. And that was the part we kept the most of. And I think it made the track because the way he just went crazy. Yeah. Well, good luck with this and with your various CD release efforts that might still be going on. And Thank you for your incredibly educated interview. Well, thanks. Later. Bye. You didn't seem to notice Step family gone Cottage glow Your fairy godmom putting on her show Transforming everything left and right And whisking you off to the palace On your way to the party Did you think back to The horrible things they'd made you do Year by year did give you the fight To tell the lion that fateful night You went walking on glass Girl, rags are gone, hair all curled, those glittering charts on your tiny feet. Could have cut you ribbons on the cobblestone street. Could have sliced a heel, the lost a toe. But you did the real even do sit walking on glass, walking on glass. Scuttling 
it's a last night's supper They're giving you shelter and a way to be Who you were in the world you see A nasty ashen little point of view Sealed with a good stiff clobber Still you face that light when it walked right in Like a saint or a demon or an alien Backyard shed You met the magic Head to head And well Walking on glass With a big brave girl Rags are gone Hair are curled Those clattering shards On your tiny feet Could've cut you To ribbons On the cobblestone street Could've sliced a heel And lost a toe But you did the real Even don't sit through Walking on glass Walking on glass That unhappy life Take a breath Feel the tremble Let it all go It's good to be humble All this grace Becomes a prince's wife Yeah, yeah Walking on glass With a big brave girl Rags all gone Hair all curled Those glittering shards On your tiny feet Could cut you to ribbons On the cobblestone street Slice the heel or lost the toe, but you did the real even though said though walking on glass, walking on glass. Oh, walking on glass, what a big girl. Well, it's all gone, hair all curled, those glittering shots on the time of feet. I could cut you to ribbons on the cobblestone street. Thanks to Jill Freeman. You can learn more about her at jillfreeman.com. It was good to have a meaty one regarding lyrics and their philosophy, because the next three episodes are going to be largely about instrumentals, starting with Jason Seed, an eclectic jazz guitarist who plays with string and horn players, who writes a lot of string parts, who plays his guitar along with elaborate string quartet parts and the like, and then David Kane and Paul Wurtico from Wurtico Kane Gray, an entirely improvised jazz group, And finally, Michael Manring, an amazing, amazing electric bassist, often associated with the Wyndham Hill label. He's played on over 500 albums, but a good chunk of his solo work is dedicated to bass solos using some really jaw-dropping techniques. And then we'll finally get back to rock and roll vocal songs when I interview Bradley Scott from the Bay Area band The Bye Bye Birdies. Now, I hope you will not miss any of these episodes. You should go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com right now and subscribe to our iTunes feed, or there's also a link to our Facebook page. If you like that, then I think the updates should show up in your feed. It would also really help me out if you could go to our iTunes store page and leave a nice rating and or review. Feel free to reach out to me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com if you've got any suggestions for future guests or you are a musician or represent a musician who you might want to have me talk to. To hear my music, go check out marklint.com. But above all, find joy, find escape if you must in music in these troubling, troubling political times. 
Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. <laughs>